Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Content Confessions. As always, it is Hershey, a.k.a. Stone Samurai, joined by my brother Steve, a.k.a. Stu. Stu, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Good to hear. How about yourself? You know, honestly, I'm doing pretty well. Just um, enjoying the weekend. Been watching a lot of playoff basketball. Um, just kind of catching up on the rest of the past couple of days, which has been nice. Nice. Yeah, I got a nice little three-day weekend coming up because of the holiday. Excuse hey. me while I open up this water here. There you go. That in your intro, I figured that would sound weird. Uh, All good. But yeah, looking forward to a couple of days off here. Going to hang out with the kiddo. Maybe take her up to the park if it's not too hot. But uh, ah, there's a spider right next to me. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, tis the season. Oh, yeah, dude, it went under the printer. Spider. Son of yeah. a bitch. All right, that's sorry, everybody. Ugh. No, that's how they get you. I was just um, telling oh. Ray and I had lost it, and then I found it again, and I lost it. All right. <laughs> yeah. Back to things. So today, today we're going to be doing an episode. We're going to be diving into Cuba. We're going to be talking about it specifically some of the uh, political upgrowth as well as the U.S. interference that took place in a lot of the building and controlling of said country. We're going to be going over some of the big names. Uh, one thing that we were debating over before doing this episode is when we did a deep dive into Cuba, um, what exactly is going to be entailed in the whole episode? And when it comes to the country, it's it's a very deep and diverse history, and we felt it would probably be better just to uh, have a completely separate episode for the revolution. Just then that way we can uh, be able to present um, all angles from it and be able to give a lot better of a uh, just a whole idea of what was happening at that time. Um, but no, before absolutely. we get in, before we get into that though. Um, I just want to say, and, and Steve, you had brought this up. How about the Bucks? Man, I am so surprised when I saw Giannis go down with that injury. I was like, "You got to be kidding me!" This is the year, you know, when everybody else is dropping like flies. You have teams who haven't really ever made it this far in the finals on both sides. Like, oh man, this is the year. And then Giannis goes down. I was like, "Oh shit, it's fucking over!" Like, you know, send in the clowns. Like, it's done. And to my surprise, as of right now, knock on wood, I don't want to jinx it because, you know, the game's still going on as we're recording, but they might end up going on to the NBA Finals. It's a great possibility. And, I mean, look, when when Giannis had got hurt that game, I was talking to Dad, and I had said, you know what, like, this might be a good good thing for Milwaukee because the game, that game, their offense was sloppy. It was terrible. Their defense was bad. Yeah, they kind of they weren't that game seven against Brooklyn. Without a doubt. And I think it's just an, it's a mixture of fatigue and um, it's just a very competitive series. Listen, Atlanta's a very good team. They're young. They're quick. They're, they're gritty. They're in your face and they don't back down. And I love that. I mean, well, just we probably have to say, too, like Trey Young going down didn't help the Hawks in that matter either. Without a doubt. I will say, though, I do feel, you know, I might catch slack from this. I do feel like Atlanta does have a little bit better overall depth compared to Milwaukee. Yeah, they have a couple more, like, for sure, weapons. 
like one of the guys could have been on the books this year if they hadn't called the tampering, you know, mm-hmm. with yeah. uh, what is that, Bogdanovich, right? Uh, Boyan Bogdanovich, yeah, because yeah. he was supposed to get there. But I mean, think about it with Atlanta, you got Boyan, you have uh, you have Lou Williams, okay, yeah, Lou Williams is the one I'm surprised who hasn't like snapped off. I was expecting him to to do a lot better because he actually played for the Bucks for a little bit, didn't he? Um, I think he might have. I can't remember off the top of my head. Like, I think, let me, uh, I don't want to sound like a fool. Let me check this really quick. Go ahead and continue with your I point. I pity, I pity the fool. But no, um, it's just been, it's been really great watching this series. You have two very, um, young teams. And I think, uh, like I had mentioned, Atlanta just has a lot more overall depth. They have a few more, uh, Fewer piece. I like Atlanta's big men a lot more than uh, Milwaukee's. Don't get me wrong, Brooke Lopez, especially that last game, that man went Dude, off, and he was fun, phenomenal. He's a fun guy to watch, and I appreciate that he ex- like he had never been a three point guy, and he expanded his game like really, really well. Not only did he make it so he could, he's a threat, but he's consistent. Um, yes, no, he, he is very. He's a great dynamic piece, but I will say, I think that, um. And it's and it's shown a few times that he can't be your number one big man. Yeah. No, no, he it, can't. It, he can't be the starter. He he's a great, you know, like especially just the way the five is played. Like Giannis is probably the guy who should be playing the five in Milwaukee and play small ball. But I think yep. having him overall is probably a good thing. But really quickly, I just wanted to add that I was wrong about Lou Williams. He didn't play for the Bucks. He's played for the Sixers. He played for the Hawks before the Raptors, the Lakers. The Rockets, the Clippers, and then back to the Hawks. But uh, I must admit confusing him with another of the many Williamses, so I apologize. <laughs> yeah, how fucking dare you, sir? Yeah. I got Rude. that. I got that so wrong. But yeah, it's been um, it's been a quite an NBA final or playoff, excuse me. Like you have the the Suns going to the finals, which is not something I would have uh, put any kind of money on at the beginning of the season. But whoever made that like bet in Vegas who was a Phoenix fan for like fuck it I'm putting a hundred down in the Suns to go all the way to the finals man like good for you dude yeah I hope you're happy I hope you're happy you lucky son of a bitch (laughs) yeah and they're a fun team to watch and uh I know it's one of those stories where you're glad that a franchise that for at least you know the last what since the Sean Marion like Steve Nash years like hasn't really been anything to really even pay attention to yeah, I mean, you know, I I definitely think the heyday was, you know, the Sean Marion, Steve Nash, and Amari Stoudemire days, without a doubt. Um, like those are those were great teams. Like the Mike D'Antoni years were fun too. Like with him running that really fun style. Uh, I forgot. Yeah. Too. That's a, that's a fucking throwback. Um, but yeah, what I like about what I like about Phoenix, real quick, I just want to say, as somebody who loves like pure point guards, um, seeing Chris Paul do yeah. his. Thing. Oh man, it gives it's giving me goosebumps right now just thinking about it because just watching him and and you can just tell that he's loving basketball again. Well, he like, just he he picks apart a court like he'll fake that pick and roll stuff and find like mid range spots all game long and just pick you to death. Well, this is the the reason I brought up the comment I did about loving basketball again because look when. When you reach a certain age, your body definitely shuts down. Chris Paul's getting old. He's like, what, 37, 38 years old now? He's right? basically the same age I am. Okay. So he's, he's getting to the point in his career where he's not able to use the same athleticism that he used when he was younger, which made him the dangerous point guard he was. Because he was a point guard that 
he was still a pass first, but he loved breaking down with the dribble. And then he would drive and be able to draw in defenses and kick out, or he'd be able to just lob it up to fucking Blake Griffin or DeAndre Jordan. And it, it was just game over. Uh, but he's somebody who, who coming into the Phoenix team, he still had to showcase that leadership role. He still had to run an offense and still do the things that he used to do when he was younger, but to the limitations of his older self. And he he's done it to a very high level. And not only that, he's elevated the play of people like Devin Booker or DeAndre Ayton, who's already um, a very high-rising uh, prospect in the NBA. Well, everybody questioned that number one pick, right, when it happened? Like, mm-hmm. why are you picking this old-school big man, like, when you got all these young dudes? Like, it wasn't Simmons in that draft? I believe so. I can't remember if that was the Simmons draft where he went like number. No, he was number one the next year. Excuse me, or the year before. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. it was fucking. Yep, you're right. My bad. Yeah, but like, I'm just trying to think of some of the names that got selected around eight and really quick. Let me uh, check this out really quick. Dude, it's like when I was younger, I used to remember facts like this off the top of my head. Yeah, recently. Like I, I can't remember that kind of shit anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. first round pick in the 2018 draft. So let me check out that 2018 draft. I, I'll just say real quickly while you're looking that up, uh, just going back for a second, but just seeing seeing Chris Paul do that and let's face it. Okay, here we um, go. Here we go. All right. So, yeah, everybody said Luca was always the steal of that draft, right? And kind of the way Luca's stock ran in this playoff, you, you kind of got a question. Maybe Aiden wasn't too bad. So you had DeAndre Aiden at number one. You had Marvin Bakley, the third from Sacramento at number two. That's a disaster of a pick. His dad yeah. runs his mouth all the time about how he wants out of there. And Bagley might have been a decent player in a better situation, but that hasn't worked out. Then you had you had Doncic at third because he was actually picked by Atlanta originally, if you remember that, which is kind of weird to think about. Mm-hmm. You had Jaron Jackson. Yeah, and then Jaron Jackson gets tra- uh, uh, picked number four. Trey Young gets picked at five by Dallas, but then they swap. Like, it's weird to just think about. Then you had Mo Bamba, Wendell Carter Jr., who's turned out to be a good player or decent player. Uh, Colin Sexton, a couple other guys. But, yeah, it looks like Aiton. I mean, you can't really argue with that number one pick as much as you used to, you know? No, and especially now because – the, the thing about basketball, right, like the three-point is always going to be a part of any NBA offense now just because of its effectiveness and the way the analytics have kind of jumped into it. Um, however, uh, analytics are great, and, you know, coaches can tell you all they want to, hey, don't take that fucking mid-range jump shot because, you know, that's like a 40%, 50% shot. Take the 41% shot at the three because that's an extra point that we get. And that means that you can slack off on defense on one or two possessions. You don't have to run back. You know what I mean? Like, it's presented in that form. And I think players are exhibiting, especially in the past couple years, like you're seeing a lot more players. um, The the floater is still a a famous thing and something that's important for an offense. But you're seeing a lot more teams now have players that are taking mid-range shots that aren't just settling for three-pointers because the game is starting to – I wouldn't say de-evolutionized, but it's starting to it's starting to shift. Well, people are changing up their perimeter defenses to play those three three pointers, you know, and it's opening up the mid range again. So you have guys like Kawhi who can just pick your poison at that spot. Yes, 
Well, and, and not to mention now we're also having athletes that I hate to bring them up, especially because of the playoffs, like Ben Simmons or, um, you know, even people like Giannis Antetokounmpo. Um, yeah, it's just not are, People who are just huge and, and, and can just do things that are and, – and so it just – it changes the game. It changes the position, and, it, and it's always moving. So that's one thing I do appreciate about Aiden is just the fact that he is kind of bringing the old school – uh, buy back to basketball because I will say this I love seeing threes and it's all fun and exciting but to me nothing is better and more pure basketball than watching somebody back someone down or do a nice sweet little like hip spin to get inside baseline and just go mm-hmm. up with it it's beautiful it's like fucking art like I'm <laughs> I feel like uh what's his name in uh, New Jack fucking ice uh ice tea like <laughs> You know what I mean? Like fucking yeah. when he finally catches Nino Brown, like I'm that's how excited I get when I see that shit. It's just it's a beautiful thing. No, and that goes back to like we talked a couple weeks ago on one of the podcasts about our favorite players to watch. And he's not a current player, but he used to play with Lillard, and that was uh Lamarcus Aldridge. I used to love mm-hmm. his post up game and that fadeaway that he had. Like that shot was just unstoppable. Yeah. There's nothing you could do. It was pretty to watch. But we don't want to distract too much from the prep episode, so I just had a quick Dovetail, unless you had anything else to add about the NBA stuff going on? Nope, that is that is it. Okay, cool. Before, I don't want to take up too much time in this podcast of the stuff we've been kind of doing on the other ones, but if anybody had been listening for the last couple of weeks, they know I've been talking about gunk gate, as some people are calling it, like, you know, all the sticky stuff that was going on with the baseball. And the last two weeks, they've had inspections going on. Like, there's been crazy events where people are getting pissed off because they're getting inspected at different times and they're kind of taking offense to it. You had one guy in the Mariners who was a reliever who actually got ejected from the game, had his glove taken, and it was sealed up in a bag to take to a lab for testing, and they'll find out if he was cheating or not. Like, there's been shit going on. But the main thing I want to bring up is offense is up. Strikeouts are down. Um, bat- batting averages are up. Just better baseball is actually going on. And so I think even though it happened in midseason, and baseball usually finds a way to fuck things up despite itself, um, it, I don't know if it's just because things are getting warmer and that's when offense tends to get better anyway, or if it's a combination, but the the sticky stuff on the baseballs is at least making it so baseball is a little bit more, you know, not having that as a constant presence is making it so it's a little bit more fun to watch. And But there are some guys getting rocked who, you know, were really great pitchers when they had that option and they're just going to have to adjust. But I think it's been an interesting couple of weeks in baseball and that does include a 12-game winning streak by my favorite team, the Milwaukee Brewers. We're now, I believe, eight games up in the Central, and it's on the Reds now. The Cubs fell in the third, so ha-ha. Ha-ha, Cubs. Yep. But you know what? I can't say too much, man, because I was actually there's, – there's a streamer that, uh, that I know pretty well, and he's a Cubs fan. Nothing against him. Oh, I kid. I kid. I have friends who can't are – right? I, I know. up in an area where I have friends who are Cubs fans. I just like to talk shit. But, oh, I do too because they deserve it. But I, I just want to quickly say – I, I brought up a good point where it's like, you know, right now I get to relish in the fact that we whooped on the fucking Cubs and, you know, uh, the Brewers are just doing very well. But I had brought up, I was like, can the Brewers just fucking throw already? Because we get this every year. They do really good in the first half, and then the second half comes along, and it just goes to shit. Hey, well, they're at least getting enough of a pad where they have to fall off really, really bad. So let's yeah. just hope that it continues. But what's really been the difference is their offense has come alive in the last uh in the last 40 games or so where they were they do have the worst average in the whole entire major leagues of like 219 for batting average and so you can see that 
they just weren't hitting for anything. They had great pitching, and that was the only thing that was keeping them around in the beginning. But uh, now their hitting is starting to catch up to their pitching, and so it's going a lot better. So it'll be fun to watch going forward. And I think that is kind of tied in with the gunk stuff that we were talking about, you know, over the last couple of weeks where I think offense as a whole is going up. You have a great performance over the last couple of weeks of Shohei Otani, a guy I was talking about recently where he hit his 29th and 30th home run last night while also pitching every five or six days and being a, a above average to great pitcher too. Like, so baseball is kind of getting fun again and uh, I'm glad to see it. Amen. America's pastime, baby. Yeah. And yeah, it'll be fun to, it'll be fun to continue to watch all the guys getting inspected on the mound. Somebody's going to eventually strip down to their underwear or some shit like that. And uh, <laughs> we'll all have an interesting show to watch. But yeah. Now we can actually get to our, our Cuba part one deep dive. Cause like Hirsch was saying, we, we had a little bit of a discussion before this and we're going to focus on the revolution and the after effects of the Cuban revolution a little bit more specifically in the next episode, but don't just skip ahead. I think the, the stuff we're going to be talking about today is going to lead into it very well. It's also going to tie in the overall series that we've been doing. Like people probably are still wondering why is this taking so long? Why are we doing all these preludes? Why are we doing all this stuff? But it all connects together. We're going to be talking about the colonial stuff today and maybe some of the American attitudes that we've been talking about over the last uh, couple months here. But I think Cuba is another example where we talked about in the last episode, the Banana Republic episode, the Banana War episode in this series, where we were starting to see patterns emerge and come together. And it's going on the same thing in Cuba. These same patterns are, are happening. These same things are happening where eventually the Cold War era that we're going to be getting to and focusing on soon, um, there's a reason why all this stuff ends up happening the way it does. Without a doubt. And so just to bring the lens uh, for what's going on and, and where we're kind of going to be starting off at and, and going to, we're going to be going back just about 100 years exactly from now. And during this time, it's, it's March, you have Alfredo Alfonso, who is uh, going to be elected president of Cuba. But there's one issue that's going on with this and an issue that seems to kind of haunt Cuba throughout its remaining history up until this day, which there are uh, rumors and accusations of tampering that are going on as well as U.S. intervention with the election. And this is something that is echoed many times by different groups that are eventually trying to prop up against the different regimes that came in and took place, the many regimes that came in and took place throughout Cuba, whether it was um, uh, U.S. military leaders themselves uh, directly or people that were controlled by the military or the United States government. No, and I'm really um, glad you brought this up, Hirsch, because like, this is the perfect like record scratch moment in the movie where the person's like, how did we get here? You know, like, like how did it get to this point? And with some of the stuff we're going to talk about in the next couple minutes, going back just a slight bit further, will kind of lead to what's going on. And it's going to set a pattern for what's going to happen over and over again in Cuba leading up to the revolution. Sorry to interrupt you there. No, you're fine. Um, but with that, you have uh, continuing U.S. intervention that's taken place in Cuba, even after, uh, during and after this election. Um, and the general consensus for, for the public in Cuba is to protect their interests and keep foreign investment out. Because in the Caribbean, it was 
um, a prime place where literally nations of power came in and plucked whatever the hell they wanted from different countries for their resource wars that were taking place. Yeah, and that brings and, up the – go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 no. Um, and I'll just quickly say and, – and so because of the examples that they had, not just in their own homeland, but in, in countries and nations surrounding them, they were able to, to quickly say and to organize and say, listen, um, we may agree on certain things, but one thing we do agree on is that we don't want that shit fucking happening anymore. No, and that brings up the question of why Cuba? Why is Cuba so interesting? Why, why has Cuba been a focus of American imagination and American goals for at least that, that 120 years, if not longer, that Hirsch was mentioning? Um, one of the things we can go back to we were talking about in the banana wars about, you know, resources being very important. And that's always part of it. You have actually Cuban and American relations basically dating back to when they both were colonies, the, uh, the United States being formerly 13 British colonies and then Cuba being Spanish colony. But at one point in, I believe 1760 something, the British actually take over Havana and, and Cuba. And so trade starts opening up a lot more with the colonies in the North and South and the Central America and the Caribbean. And the revolution and the separation of, of them from Britain, of the United States from Britain, opens up even more trade opportunities. Um, as Spain is like, hey, we can start trading with these North, North American people and, and hurt our, our greatest enemy, which is, is Great Britain at the time. And so trade between Cuba and the United States goes back a lot further. And then interest for the annexation of Cuba goes back even further where you have it really going back almost to 1818, 1820, where you have uh, Jefferson saying stuff like, you know, the most interesting addition which ever could be made to our system of states is Cuba. You have guys like John Quincy Adams saying that the likelihood of the annexation of Cuba within a half century was almost, you know, going to happen no matter what. That as long as it didn't ha didn't get taken over by another European group, that it would probably become part of the United States. That was pretty much the expectation at some point. But it comes, it becomes tied into American or United States politics at the time, where you have a lot of the Democrat um, administrations being very supportive of of administering Cuba into the United States. There's attempts to buy Cuba from the Spanish Crown a couple different times. There was actually a hundred million dollar offer. That was made by President James K. Polk in the, in the 1840s. Uh, the Secretary of State at the time, James Buchanan, who eventually became president. They sent a guy who pretty much fucked everything up. So they weren't able to get it. But they had been trying for a very long time. But the Whigs, who were basically like the, the Northern Party, like a lot of them ended up forming the, the moderate to conservative wing of the Republican Party. Um, they were against the idea because it would be a pro-Southern move. Cuba would have been seen as a, a slaveholding state. And so it gets tied in to U.S. politics at the time, which is basically saying, like, we want, uh, you know, we have anti-slavery coalitions. We have pro-slavery coalitions who are fighting over the idea of, of adding on Cuba. And so we led up, we talked about before the Spanish-American War, where really it becomes involved in the Cuban uh, War of Independence. And that all gets tied in together, but manifest destiny and the idea of Cuba are very tied together. And we had talked about that previously. And I think that's why it's very important that we had those episodes before, because this is all tying together in the idea of the American imagination. Well, and it also, it, it also connects the strings and the understanding of, 
you know, why exactly uh, America was able to to intervene? Because one of the one of the key arguments that always gets presented around whenever U.S. intervention gets brought up is how come it was so easy then for them to intervene, blah, blah, blah. Well, then maybe they really did need our help when uh, that's just to completely dismiss uh, predatory nature. Right. Like anybody who's grown up in a city or even, you know, even small towns. Right. Like there's always that one person who's looking to get up over everyone else and they'll do it by any means, whether that's uh, physical harm, um, threats, intimidation, whatever have you. And it's it's something that happens not just to people, but it happens to countries as well. And this is a perfect case of that right here. No, absolutely. And in the lead up to the Spanish-American War, you even had during the presidency of guys like Ulysses S. Grant, where there were where there were fights for independence that would end up getting support from uh, United States because they wanted the Spanish out of the way. You have eventually Secretary of State James Blaine, who in uh, 1881 says of Cuba, that rich island, the key to the Gulf of Mexico and the field for a most extended trade in the Western Hemisphere is though in the hands of Spain, a part of the American commercial system. If ever ceasing to be Spanish, Cuba must necessarily become American and not fall under any other European domination. And so you, you have this mindset from the beginning that Cuba needs to be part of the American sphere. Um, you have the idea eventually, like we had said, Hirsch, where they, they wanted to buy it, right? And so they do try to buy it again. That doesn't work out. They end up offering in 1897 after the rebels are able to succeed in their, in their second war of independence, president McKinley actually offers to buy Cuba for 300 million. Spain rejects the offer. You shortly after have the USS Maine getting blown up in the Havana Harbor that we had mentioned before that leads directly to the Spanish American war where the outcome basically ends Spain's last colonial possessions in the Caribbean, where you have Puerto Rico and Cuba going to us possession along with stuff like the Philippines out in the, in the, Phila, in the uh, Pacific ocean. But really, you have the United States taking over control of Cuba at that time. And that was the goal all the time. But what happens, too, besides just occupation and wanting economic control is we had mentioned, Hirsch, that the idea of American imperialism changed at that time or, or shortly thereafter. Right. Remember, like we had talked about how we stopped making colonies and we basically started messing with economies. Right. We, we changed the United States, changed who was allowed to be an American and who was allowed to be exploited. You could exploit who you wanted to, but it was going. They were stopping adding who was going to be an American, and that was definitely the case with both Puerto Rico and Cuba. Without a doubt, I mean the identity of what it is to be American started coming out from them. Then you also have things like the eugenics movement, which started focusing and shifting um, the identity of whiteness from being a more uh, biological term to being a more societal and uh, constructed term to where it's used today. Yeah. No, and you, you not only have a change in definition of who we were going to allow to call themselves American, like we had mentioned before, especially in, in regards to the Mexico episode, but uh, you basically have the idea that we can just exploit people economically. We don't need to stretch ourselves too much uh, militarily. We don't need to stretch ourselves as much in these other regards. We just want economic control. But the, the war leads to the direct mil military rule of Cuba. Um, it, it's really lasting at least until 1902, but then you have a couple other occupations. You have stuff like the, the Platt Amendment that we had talked about before, where the United States basically was ruling that country in all but name. They would put in leaders that they wanted to. And that kind of leads to what Hirsch had brought up in the beginning of this part, where you have that election going on, 
where United States interference is already known as a given. It's really just a question of, of who they're going to support and why. And, and to present it in a different way, right, it was, it was taking it because at first, before you had the Platt Amendment, you had something that was known as the Teller Amendment, which is mm-hmm. basically the start of the transition of the way that we had talked about American imperialism starting to shift. And so basically with the Teller Amendment, it was uh, Cleveland's way, uh, Grover Cleveland and uh, William McKinley's, rather, I'm sorry. Um, it was his way of saying, you know what, we're not going to annex Cuba, right? But instead, we're going to turn over the, the control of the power to everybody who, who lives there, right? But the only the thing is, is there's a huge but there. We're still going to be there. We're still going to leave our military there. We're going to have control over certain ports. We're going to have control over certain bases, but we're not going to interfere, Mm-hmm. That was the that was the original agreement, and then it had shifted to what we had mentioned just before, which was the Platt Amendment, which had which eventually came in. And yeah, I wanted so for, for over thirty years, they basically just have almost direct control. Direct control, and it was basically backed by the United States military because it was basically United States military going in there, either themselves directly and taking over, or appointing different people that they were training. Um, and it was about naval bases, and that's where Guantanamo comes in. Exactly, because that was part of the Platt Amendment where we actually end up agreeing to uh, take control of Guantanamo. But I wanted, I wanted to backtrack really quick because you had mentioned Grover Cleveland before, mm-hmm. and he was somebody that was taking place during uh, the late 1800s. Um, the reason that he wanted Cuba so importantly, besides the whole idea of uh, the Monroe Doctrine, was... Cuba had basically a worth annually of almost $1.5 billion, which if you think about that number, like that for an economy, especially like the United States that was growing, needed an influx of money to continue to expand to what it needed to be as well as grow grow its uh, military. That was uh, without, without having pun intended, Cuba was its cash crop. Mm-hmm. if you will, because it was plumb for the picking. Well, and you had a lot of, especially after the occupation, you had a lot of American business. You had a lot of Americans going in there and buying up land where it gets to the point where between government cooperation and private corporations, um, um, U.S. United States citizens and interest have a lot of power in that country, especially for the ratio compared to the rest of the population. And so I think that that all ties into what you had brought up, Hirsch, which was a great introduction where over the next three decades, like I had mentioned, you have direct interference between basically United States governors who are trying to run stuff. And you have rebellions that keep on popping up over the next 20 years. The United States has two different occupations and military campaigns, one in, uh, excuse me, three, 1906 to 1909. 1912 and then 1917 to 1922. One of those conflicts actually involves a huge African Cuban population who were trying to establish basically their own mini state within Cuba. And that ended up getting squashed with American assistance as well. And just to go back for a quick second, during that withdrawal that took place in 1909, there was an army official by the name of Robert Bullard, and he was actually quoted saying, "This is the U.S. will have to go back. It's only a matter of time. And 
I think it's important to bring that up just because it was it wasn't as if uh, the the way that things were being presented in Washington and just to the to the global forum, uh, they were saying you know there was stability now. Uh, the Liberal Party had taken over, so you know everything's okay. They you know they're bringing in a reform. They're not connected to us. They're you know democratically elected. Blah 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 blah. And that was the the guys. But even the same people that were occupying that country were all like, we're just going to have to come back. Like, why the fuck are we leaving? Well, and you have really terrible instances of really horrible stuff going on during the occupation where you have different leaders basically committing like heinous war crimes and that kind of thing too. So there's huge, huge anti-American resentment that's building up as well, besides just the economic exploitation and the political exploitation. Especially of, and you had mentioned before, um, the uh, the Afro-Cubans that, uh, and, and this was an, an important thing for them too, because they, they were a specific group that uh, because of the hierarchy that was put into place, they were specifically targeted whenever it came to um, any sort of economic struggle, any sort of political struggle. They were basically the uh the scapegoats for for that country and they were often um sought after whether it's for lynchings executions or jailings and so you have during this time not only do you have a resentment growing for the united states but you also have a resentment growing within it's uh within the, the country itself for the cheap and elite yeah, yeah for the for elite the, and the white the european whites yeah because at this point in time and and again i mentioned it earlier like uh, um, for a very long time, not up until we name somebody later, there is uh, nothing but white elected leaders that are put into place. And I use the term elected loosely. And some people thinking, uh, some people listening to this might think to themselves like, wait, Cuba, white, that doesn't make sense. And again, that's why I brought up the importance of uh, things like the eugenics movement in the late 1800s for the idea and the appropriation of being American and being white started being adapted to more of a societal structure as opposed to a biological one or a genetic one. And well, it was connected between both of them. You not only do you have the genetics and the biology, but then you have, it depends on the society that you're in because in, in a spit in a place like Cuba, you have a white Spanish population. You have a, a black Afro Cuban population. And then you have a native population that ends up sometimes getting mixed. We talked about those hierarchies before all of this ends up defining who the elite are based on that hierarchy and that hierarchy always makes white people the elite. And so no matter what you might be necessarily, like if those same Cuban white Cubans were to move somewhere else, they, they might pass as white, let's say, but even if they didn't, doesn't mean they aren't considered white where they are. Exactly. And, and just to quickly like iterate to remind people in case they're wondering like Afro Cuban about the term. So we had mentioned before, way back a couple episodes ago, uh, there was a thing that was known as the Seven Years' War, and basically Britain had sent a bunch of warships and a bunch of uh, slaves to go occupy and take over uh, Cuba and take it from Spain and France. But I just wanted to quickly bring that in if you're wondering exactly like the idea um, and concept of uh, Afro-Cuban came from. No, and that occupation was that 1762 one that I had mentioned before. I didn't have the exact year. So I yeah, just wanted but, to bring that in. Sorry. No, 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 absolutely. That's an important point to make. And like, yeah, the occupation is really terrible. Not only are, you know, just rampant 
rampant war crimes going on, discrimination, making sure that we're putting our, our corporations in favorable positions. You have people buying up a lot of property. Um, Hirsch, you had mentioned you had found some stats. One of the stats I had seen, you know, you can think of this as a connecting to the Banana Wars episode because Cuba is really one of those places where the Banana War mentality is really in full effect, where by 1926, U.S. companies owned 60% of the Cuban sugar industry and, in, and the United States imported 95% of the total Cuban crop. And so Washington was cool with the different um, governments as long as that sweet fucking sugar kept on going, right? Yep, they needed something to fill that coffee up. Yeah, you need that sugar. And then the, the profit margins, those aren't getting brought back into Cuba. And even if you have leaders who are somewhat supportive of, of labor movements and workers and that kind of thing, they're always skimming from the top. And we'll see that later on where the, the leaders are always corrupt in some way where they're making the, we had mentioned this before, the elites in these countries, it's not just the U.S. corporations, it's not just the, United, the foreign corporations in the United States, you know, exploiting these, these poor government, these poor leaders. These elites in these countries are often in on it because they're getting rewarded too. Exactly. And, and that's so why I had mentioned, oh, I'm sorry, I was just going to say, so, and that's what I had mentioned before, I think it was uh, last up, a couple episodes ago. Um, when we when we bring up things like this or like, you know, U.S. intervention, it's to highlight the fact that the U.S. did intervene, but to highlight also the fact that it wasn't the only thing that ended up causing a lot of uh, a lot of things that ended up happening because it's important to understand the context of it. But we can't also completely pretend like it never happened either. Well, it's about agency. Like these people still have motives. They still have actions that they take. Like they're not just helpless, like even though a majority of us feel helpless, you know, I'm not saying that we, we can fight the powers and win all the time, but like these government leaders, the elite, especially they have agency, they make decisions. They, they impact their countries and their people just the same as outside forces do. Maybe not as powerfully. Maybe you have American hegemony that is so strong. It would kind of overwhelm those forces, even if they stood against them, but you have elites who often stand with them. And I think that's important to mention that, you know, for every awesome revolutionary we can talk about, we can probably name five people who went along with it and just took all the money they could and, and basically fucked over their people, right? Yeah. What's more American than that? Yeah. And I mean, we just, we export that mindset and then you have elite political figures, whether it's liberals or conservatives who both end up taking advantage of these systems. And so we eventually do have, um, kind of a leftist turn in Latin America. We had mentioned that before, where you have leftist organizations, leftist ideals kind of spreading. You have uh, one of the people that had a conflict in the government, uh, the government of Gerardo Machado. I hope I'm pronouncing that okay. Uh, had a bunch of political opposition that led to the military overthrow by Cuban rebels in, 33, in 1933. And Sumner Wells, uh, who was the U.S. ambassador at that time under Franklin D. Roosevelt, uh, basically said like, hey, we need to really take care of this. We need military intervention. And despite everything we talked about before with, with Roosevelt, with FDR, excuse me, wanting to kind of change America's reputation, wanting to change U.S. policy, he still sent 29 different warships to Cuba and Key West, set the Marines on alert, and said that there's bombers for use if necessary. But Machado eventually stepped down. This guy, Ramon Grau, assumes the presidency. He nullifies the Platt Amendment. The Platt Amendment was the only thing that had stuck around through all the, uh, uh, or excuse me, the only thing that ended up sticking around from the Platt, Platt Amendment is the stuff about Guantanamo Bay. So they, they nullify the Platt Amendment. He gets, Grau gets called a communist 
and irresponsible, like in response. So you're already starting to see, even in 33, before the Cold War starts, there's that anti-communist, anti-leftist uh, policy that's going on. Well, and, and in 33, there was also um, Sumner Wells, part of the U.S. envoy, who, uh, who starts coming into play, right? Mm-hmm. And did you want me to go ahead and jump from there? Because he basically... Yeah, uh, that's why I was bringing he, him up for you. Oh, yeah. So, so basically from that, you have uh, um, Machado, who he, was, he had started off with, quote, good intentions, was the originally uh, seen idea. But the, um, he was, as we had mentioned, he was seen as weak. And then you eventually have uh, con- a conspiring of basically a bunch of sergeants in the United States military um, in Cuba who are basically slowly but surely taking over the Cuban military and starting to install plans to throw a coup, throw a coup. Um, it had also been kind of referred to as the uh, sergeants in revolt movement. And the reason mm-hmm. why that's important is because in, in most cases, a sergeant is only in command of like a dozen people. I think I'm, I'm not a huge like military person, but from my understanding, they're only like under a platoon or something like that, essentially. Right. Yeah. Like a, like a smaller group, but, you had a certain sergeant who I will I will quickly name Batista, who was very charismatic and was very good at getting people to buy into what he was selling, which was the idea that we can completely um, take over this government. Our current leader is weak, and you will be able to do what's better. I'm not going to and, – and the way that he was able to sell this to people, because most times when people start talking like that, it's like, oh, you just want the fucking power for yourself. But the way that he started presenting it was, I'm not going to be in charge. I'm just going to be in charge of the military, right? Like, I know how to run the military. Everybody likes me in the military. So let me run your military. I will be in the background. I'll let somebody else be become elected president, right? I don't need to be president. And so that's what ends up happening. And they ended up bringing in uh, Carlos Manuel de Cespedes. If I pronounce that wrong, my apologies, Um but it was the, the revolt of the sergeants, to, to basically summarize that sequence of, of what happened, it was, a, it was a coup of informal leadership. So in other words, it was basically um, an, un, uh, like an unannounced agreement between certain, certain leadership in the military to be like, okay, you know what, we're going to sign off on doing this. Um, and the reason it was why like a five-member group basically that was in control, right? But he was truly in control. But he was the one that was truly pulling the strings. And the reason why I bring that up and why it's so important is because when you are thrown throughout history, it's always led by either generals or colonels. But this is a case where a coup is literally led from the ground up as opposed from top down, which it's is a populist revolt. It, it's it's a populist revolt, but it just goes to show how powerful. Batista is not just in his military might and knowledge, but just being able to to work with people and as some will argue manipulate, which I kind of agree with the latter, but that's just my personal opinion. Well, he was charismatic. He was uh he was able to draw people towards him, and whether he was going to use that for good or, or bad was you know up to him. But he was definitely you can't you can't discount it. Like he was able to draw people towards him and get them to be very loyal to him for one reason or the other. 
Well, and one of his biggest selling points too, and I have to bring this up because it's important to to keep in mind as as we go further and start talking about him and just Cuba in general. He was somebody that first started off um, being completely um, anti-U.S. intervention. And part of the reason that he was uh, completely anti-U.S. intervention is that he, Batista himself, was somebody that came from literally low class. He was... Um, uh, he was basically he was born on a cabana, and this happened thirty years after after they had gained their independence. And at this point in time, you have uh, you know people like Grover Cleveland, and you start having the McKinley stuff going on, et cetera, et cetera. But he was somebody that came from a family that was very poor, and he was uh, somebody that came from uh, the classes that were generally associated with being impoverished. So he wasn't somebody that came from an upper class. He wasn't somebody who would be able to rise to any sort of prominent power position because of who he was born to. Well, and like he was definitely of mixed blood. Um, he might have even had some indigenous blood, like he might have had some Tayano descent. But he was uh, Spanish, African, Chinese, and possibly Taino. So he was definitely, like you had mentioned before, he's the first non-white eventual president of Cuba. But he also, like, his father didn't even want to give him his legal name. Like, he was kind of, he had to eventually, like, when he ran for an office at some point, basically had to pay a judge, like, say, hey, I, I have to change my name legally because it's not my legal fucking name. It's not my name, man. Yeah, um, so he definitely comes from a very different background than any of the previous or, or leaders at that time. And, and basically, he had gotten his in. He joined the army. It wasn't out of, uh, you know, wanting to serve his country. It was basically because he wanted to get money. He wanted to ensure that he would have a career and that possibly one day he'd be able to navigate, possibly leave the country, uh, but most, uh, most importantly, be able to start generating a little bit of wealth for himself. So he started off as a stenographer and a journalist um, in the military. Um, he ends up being stationed at uh, a few different uh, military forts ever throughout Havana. And he ends up meeting his wife while he's stationed there. But we're going to fast forward just, just be, uh, to stay a little bit more pertinent for a second. Um, in 1928, he uh, gets a bump up. He, gum he goes from being a private to a sergeant, which is important because, as we had mentioned before, sergeants revolt. Um, and this happened while he was stationed in Camp Columbia. So this this is literally a person for uh, for every Republican's favorite term, built himself up by the, and pulled himself up by the bootstraps, came from Ashy the Classic, did it his way. And he was somebody that had rose in the ranks and was now uh, a sergeant and was going to be able to be in control of men himself entirely. Yeah, and he basically positions himself where he doesn't take power directly and name himself. There's the Pentarchy of 1933, which is established after that coup that you had mentioned, Hirsch. Uh, he's not a, a member in name. It's these five different groups who had all fought against the previous government who end up being like a five-man coalition that's going to rule. So you have like a person who represents like the university. You have a person who represents the army. You have like different stuff like that, different factions that were going on. Uh, so that's where Ramon Guadal St. Martin comes into the presidency. But he really only is able to keep power for 100 days. He doesn't have a very good coalition behind him. Batista 
presents himself as kind of a populist at the time, though, but he's also behind the scenes working with Sumner Wells. And so Grau is eventually replaced by this guy named Mendieta. The United States recognizes the new government, which then lasts for under a year. But Batista eventually <clears throat> becomes a strong man. Basically, a, he's, a, he's the puppet master behind a bunch of different presidents until he officially takes power in 1940. Well, and, and one quick thing that I want to interject with, too, is the reason that uh, Mendieta was somebody that was able to get approve, uh, approvement from the United States. One, he was somebody who backed the wealthy landowners. And mm-hmm. two, he was approved by just about almost every single faction that was on the island, including the Communist Party. Yeah. He didn't piss anybody off enough. They were, he was at least acceptable. Yeah, he was able to work within the lines. Mm-hmm. But none of these guys really have like much of a following themselves. They're kind of all relying on Batista's, uh, Batista's charisma to kind of pull them through, right? Like a lot of these presidencies don't last much longer than a couple months, maybe half of a year at a time until the last one, which lasts three or four years right before Batista is elected. But the platform he runs on, like Hirsch had mentioned, he eventually, he had, you know, he runs as a populist, uh, which in that, which at that time in Cuba means like, you know, playing into anti-American sentiment, um, kind of putting stuff in the constitution of Cuba at that time that will talk about, you know, we need to support the people, we need to put in land reform. And he, he kind of not only walk, does the talk, but he kind of walks the walk, right? Um, he puts into stuff like the right to strike. He's very supported. He's supported throughout the entire time by the labor movements and, and pretty much the Communist Party at that time. While also keeping good relations with the United States, which is a pretty tough line to walk. It definitely is, especially concerning the labor movements, because that was one of the biggest concerns for the United States when they first came in. Now, when when they came into Cuba, they uh, they had Cubans who were used to a three-hour workday. They would literally only have to work three hours, and then they'd be off. Um, so the United States was uh, pretty furious and had to slowly periodically shift the mindset of uh, what labor is, especially in Cuba. Yeah, he was supported by the Democratic Socialist Coalition at that time, which included the Communist Party. Um, you know, he had their support of not only the leadership in those movements, but pretty much the, the rank and file like uh, like labor leaders and labor workers. Um, really, he supported, you know, the idea of labor laws and labor unions and other, he would basically tie people as, you know, paint people as reactionaries or fascists who were against him. But he did carry out major social reforms. You know, he was able to establish economic regulations and very pro-union laws. So in the very beginning, he rules until 44. But for that term, you could say he was a a good populist president. Well, and one could even argue, too, and this is one thing that I've always kind of thought about. um, How much of the unrest that was happening in that area was due to, like, people like Batista who were possibly feeling the flames or or just uh, the flame themselves? Well, and is he just riding a wave or or is he, like, truly a believer? That's always the question, right? Yes. Because you even have stuff where... You know, they, Cuba enters the war on the side of the Allies, um, declaring war on Japan pretty much after Pearl Harbor is attacked, you know, close American ties. But he, they also declare war on Germany and Italy. Um, he also 
talks about the United Nations should declare war on Spain because Francisco Franco's regime, which maybe we should maybe do an episode in the future on because the Franco regime, not a lot of people know about, but that's like a, a early fascist regime where a lot of the, a lot of the tactics, a lot of the motivations for Hitler get tried out for World War II. But Franco Spain, like he had called the regime fascist from, from almost the get go and was like, hey, we need to take these motherfuckers out after the Spanish Civil War. And so he's not only like a, a, a good local leftist, but he's thinking internationally. And so you kind of have to, you kind of have to wonder, like I said, was he a true believer or was he just riding a wave? Yeah, and I don't know. I we'll we'll get into that uh, later, but I'll just quickly say, I myself seem to think that he was just riding the wave, that he was never a true believer. Well, I just I, I think coming from the background he did, that's why I'm almost at least somewhat willing to give him benefit of the doubt is that I think for some people who are born like that, it's, it's, you almost never forget what it's like to be poor. Mm. You know what I mean? And like, you can, you can maybe not have as much empathy the further on you get as far as riches and power go. But I think for some people, you never forget that feeling, you know? See, the only, the only way I could see that being possible, right? Like, cause I, I definitely see what you're saying. I think the only way that, um, he could have changed is during his time when he came back to Florida and started making his well, connections. It was also in the control of the United States government in the deep state. Well, I think, and not to sound all Q and shit like that when you bring up deep state, but yeah, you basically have like the military industrial complex is what it used to be called. Right. That, that even Eisenhower himself, who is in power eventually a little bit after this in the United States, brings up himself about the, one of the greatest dangers to American democracy and democracy around the world is the military industrial complex. And that's, that's what you're talking about, Hirsch. Not only are you talking about the U.S. military and all its branches, but you're talking about the intelligence services that, that provide information to the United States government and its military, whether it's the CIA, National Security Administration, all this kind of stuff. But to take a, we have, you know, Batista only serves till 44. <clears throat> His successor gets beat by Grau who comes back. Professor Grau, my man. Professor Grau comes back, all right? So, but Batista is trying to, you know, poke a little bit. He's still keeping support with the Americans. He, he continues to participate. He is involved with the Cuban Senate. But he's really spending a lot more time in either New York City or in Florida. Um, he eventually decides that he wants to run for president eventually again. But I think really quick, Hirsch, just to take a quick break from Cuba itself overall, just to kind of add a quick bit of context to what's going on at this time as far as uh, the United States and what they're thinking. We had talked about the leftist turn in Latin America, but you have an opposite turn after the New Deal, where you had basically what was almost essentially uh, a quasi-socialist policies that were run by a social Democrat, maybe like FDR, where FDR wanted to save capitalism, right? With some, with a little bit of socialism, but it becomes the exact opposite where you have the Truman doctrine, which is established shortly after the end of world war II, where we're basically saying we need to stop any kind of Soviet or communist expansion at, by any means necessary. And so we start the United States start get, starts getting involved and supporting totalitarian regimes start supporting different movements regardless of their politics as long as they're anti-communist getting involved in things like the greek civil war stuff like that so 
you have a historian, Eric Foner, who I've read a lot of his stuff. He does really good work, especially about like uh, United States history, that the doctrine sets a precedent for American assistance for anti-communist regimes throughout the world, no matter how undemocratic, and for the creation of a set of global military alliances directed against the Soviet Union. So again, that's that that's the goal, right? Is we want to make sure that we don't have any more Soviet takeovers like we saw in Eastern Europe. And that that shift is not only going to take place in you know in Greece, where it starts in Eastern Europe there, but it also is going to take place in Southeast Asia and then Central South America and the Caribbean. And so the German doctrine basically becomes the basis of American Cold War policy throughout Europe and the world. We shift American policy towards the Soviet Union from an anti-fascist alliance to a policy of containment, who were once our allies stopping the fascist, we are now saying are our enemies to stop communism. And we essentially take the side of the fascist in a lot of these places instead of the communists, because it's all about stopping them in any, any means possible. Which, I mean, it, it's a complete show, right? That it's not even about ideology at that point. It's just about power. Well, and the, the ideology is power in a weird way, right? It's about capitalism. It's about, it, that's when you, you have during this time, you have In God We Trust made as the second American motto. We have it put in the Pledge of Allegiance. It's on our money. Like, we are... We are going to be anti-communist in every way, including our culture, not only our economic system, but our culture, our way of life that the, the communists are, are so evil. We can't be anything like them at all. But you know, so, what's, you, you know, what's ahead. funny about that. I just want to say, like, I always find it like really funny that like the response to like anti-communist rhetoric is communist rhetoric, but just pointed and used in like a Western way. So well, like, like the best example, but, right. Pledge yeah. of allegiance. Like, it, what what free country demands people stand up and put their hand over their heart and repeat words, especially citing like a certain God from a religion that they may not practice? Well, it becomes fascistic, right? Like any mm -hmm. any anti-communism almost inherently becomes fascistic, even if it starts out from a liberal perspective. And that's not to say that communists have everything right, that you can't not be a communist and have good theories. Like I don't consider myself a communist per se. Like I, I agree with Marx and a lot of theories and that kind of thing, but I'm not I'm not a tanky by any means. Uh, Fucking Marxist. But like, uh, but that's not to say that like the idea that the only good system is an anti-communist system. That basically, it, you know, if you're an anarchist, it doesn't make you a fascist. I'm not trying to say that. But what I'm trying to say is that like inherently being an anti-communist and being that extreme about it, you basically end up supporting fascist, if not becoming fascist yourself. Indeed. And well, I mean, it's uh, it, it's the same thing. You can replace communism with terrorism, right? Like, it's the same thing. Like, yeah. anti-terrorist state becomes terrorist state doing anti-terrorism. Well, and you, you had know? former you had former leftists like Christopher Hitchens, who was a guy I used to look up to until he supported the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War and stuff like that. Who was like trying to tie it in, like, oh, these are Islamo fascists, you know, like saying that kind of stuff. And so they're trying to tie it into that old language that would maybe like in, import the left to like see Muslims as fascist inherently. Like it just, it, 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 it felt wrong from the beginning and it was basically fascist as thinking on its own. Hmm. Sorry to bring up that tangent. No, 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 you're fine. No, it's, it's important to bring up. It's, it's, uh, it brings to 
part of it's a little piece of the puzzle. Absolutely. And I think especially I wanted to just mention that Truman Doctrine shift and the shift of the United States in general. You have stuff like the Organization of American States, which is formed as basically an anti. It's initially about, you know, cooperation and making sure that the all the American governments, Central South America and the United States and, you know, we all cooperate and, it, and it's all equal. But it's really about American control, business hegemony and eventually anti-communist um, governments are assisted, anti-government policy, anti-communist po government policies are rewarded, and anyone who takes any kind of leftist stance is painted as a communist and a threat. And so Batista was able to walk that fine line for so long, and, and I think the only reason he's able to do it, right, is because it was before the Truman Doctrine. And I mm. think what happens is his time spent in, a, in the United States under the influence of anti-communist propaganda in the United States and realizing the writing on the wall but also, Hirsch, as we're going to talk about a little bit here, and I think it's going to be a fun part of the episode, is he eventually makes a lot of mob connections. And I think, I think money and greed play a lot into the shift of Batista. But I think American pressure, like you have Truman in the State of Union, or I think it was just an appearance maybe between joint session of Congress, maybe not a State of Union. But he put a lot of pressure on the idea of anybody who might have supported anything even close to communism. And so this is, uh, you know, sitting the table for McCarthyism and all this kind of stuff that's going to come in the future. But you have this, this very anti-communist sentiment that's happening immediately after World War II. And honestly, at the end of World War II, because that's really the reason we dropped the, the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's not that the Japanese would have kept on fighting. That was the only way to beat them. Like, we didn't want them to give like a peaceful resolution. We wanted to show the communists in the Soviet Union that we had the bomb and weren't afraid to use it if we had to. And it's really about projecting that American power very early on because really the baton is almost passed, right? Like Britain was the world dominating power for so long, especially compared to anybody else in, in European history outside of places like Spain and that kind of thing where the British Empire kind of passes the baton for world domination and world building to the United States, like the British basically pull out of the Middle East, they pull out of a lot of Africa, eventually throughout the decades, they pull out of a lot of Central and South America, and kind of out of the empire game, like, especially with India, where they're forced to, they, they pass that baton onto the United States as far as hegemonic control and world domination go. Also, shout out Gandhi. Hey, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, too bad Gandhi was a piece of shit, it turns out, but you know, he yeah. Yeah, I just I, I wanted to bring that up because I knew you'd be like, man, fuck Gandhi. I just I it's love not even it's not even like fuck Gandhi, but like he turns out he was a pedo and like just kind of some gross stuff, you know? Well, I mean, yeah, anytime you you see people with power like that it ends up turning out that they fucking use it and Yeah. But I guess it's one of those things it. where the idea of something maybe is more important than the truth, but I would hate to cast aside the the you know, the stuff that he might have done to people. But, I don't know yeah, without a doubt, but he was definitely point. implemental to uh, to making sure that the British got the fuck out, though. And don't give me any ats about fucking canceling Gandhi. Shove that up your ass. Dude, fucking cancel Gandhi right now. Hashtag cancel. Everybody, fucking, honestly, anybody who lived like more than, a, than in this current generation is probably cancelable, and we just have to deal with that. Fucking retweet slash negative um, R and cancel. Shit. 
seventeen year old me was definitely cancelable. Fuck that guy. Oh dude, I know. I know. That's like not to go quickly, not to go too off, I'll just quickly say like that's one thing that like I, I look back to all the stupid shit that I used to say, especially going back watching like nineties media, like stuff I grew up on. Mm-hmm. And like I look back and I realize just like how fucking nasty of a person I was. Yeah, and it's not even for granted. And it's not even like a guilt thing that I feel necessarily. Like obviously it's like, damn, I was a fucking kind of a shitty person. But it's like I come in from the understanding where it's like, yeah, I was a shitty person, but like that was just like the societal norm, right? Like that was stuff that was reinforced. When now societal norm has shifted a little bit at least, not completely, but it shifted in a sense where it's like, hey, maybe you should be a little bit more fucking considerate of the way that you talk to people and about them more importantly. You know? No, absolutely. I can think about especially the language I used to use. Oh, yeah, dude. I mean, uh, I'll never forget, like, when, when the Trump shit started happening, I had a friend from, like, high school. And anytime that I'd post something, like, he would always jump on there. And one day, I'll never forget, one day he hopped on there. He's like, dude, I remember you from high school and all the stupid shit that you used to say, blah, blah, blah. I was like, yeah, I was in fucking high school, dude. Like, mm-hmm. of course I was saying stupid <clears throat> shit. Like, are you really? Yeah. Like, uh, are you really was... going to hold that against me? Yeah. Well, and then I said, like, so what? You still think the same way that you did in high school? Yeah. Like, is that not. what you're saying? Yeah. Like, what the fuck, dude? Like, and, and that's the thing. Um, But yeah, sorry. I just wanted to. No, that's absolutely right. Like, especially like you had mentioned, like the language that was used, you know, certain words and phrases that we were like, no, that's just, that doesn't mean what you think it means. Like trying to tell people how fucking our language is affecting them like a moron, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Like, I'm just saying it in a joking way. Don't take it that way. Like, you don't get to tell anybody how they take anything. Just don't say it. It's only a word that gets used against you to make you feel like shit all the time. And this yeah. is a person that's supposed to make you feel good, but isn't because they're using this word. Deal with yeah. it. Yeah. It's the horrible, um, I think Michael Scott says it the worst, best way, where he's talking about the arsler. <laughs> yeah. And, and he tries to excuse it as you don't call a handicapped person the arsler. You call your friend an arsler when they're being, you know, whatever. And. Like, that's what people try to pass it off on, but that's not very funny or, or it's not true. Yeah. But yeah, besides oh. the point. Sorry. But yeah, so like, if we really want to get into like the deep state shit, we have the National Security Act of 1947. This is a major law that basically creates the modern military as we think about it, but also the intelligence agencies that we think about as well. <clears throat> so you have the Department of War originally, gets turned into the Department of the Army. You have the Department of, or the Secretary of Defense, the Department of Defense is created where the Pentagon eventually is established. So you have the Secretary of Defense taking over for the Department of War from these old cabinet terms and that kind of thing. You have the Air Force created at that point, which is separated from the Army. So you have the Army Air Forces and the the United States Air Force, which are separate, but the Marines are kept as independent under the Department of the Navy. You have the establishment of the National Security Council and the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, which is the United States' first peacetime non-military intelligence agency. And we know what a sterling and great reputation they have. They've never done anything wrong ever. Never. Do they have zero fucking 100 million days since the last accident and intervention? all, All hits, no misses. 
Yeah, one hundred percent. That's a terrible pun for the horrible shit they've done. I didn't mean to say that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a major restructuring of the United States government and military following World War II. And really, this the Truman Doctrine, along with the Marshall Plan, which is rebuilding Europe, uh, become like the basis of the new Cold War and the Cold War consensus, whether you're a liberal or conservative, you are anti-communist no matter what. And this, this idea of the CIA having its fingers involved in all these different countries and all this different stuff going on behind the scenes, we really got a distaste for occupation starting with the Great Depression, right, Hirsch? Like you see the United States kind of pulling back on occupations. And we'll talk about that maybe when we get to other specific countries, but you have places like the Dominican Republic, you have Haiti, where really it's the depression that forces withdrawal more than like military being like, hey, we should get out of there and be nice or, or any kind of like political pressures. It's really financial stuff. And so not only can we not have the military involved unless we have to, we can still exploit these countries, but control stuff now with our new intelligence agency. It's a best of both worlds situation. Yeah, not not blatant occupation, and everybody gets paid. And you can wipe your hands clean if, if you make a fuck up, and you can blame it on uh, either a certain leader or a certain group that is out of your control, or and just the so, country. And, and when just, I yeah. and when I say everybody gets paid, I obviously meant by everybody, the job creators, right? Everybody That's gets paid. That's our favorite term, right? Job creators. And job creators love creating jobs and paying their workers, right? So Yeah, they create a lot of mercenary and assassination positions. Yeah, dude. Fucking, hey, the only way is up, dude. Murder is booming. Uh, <laughs> we hit every shot. Never miss, dude. But yeah, like, not only that, but, like, you have... <laughs> dude, this is kind of funny, all right? This is almost like, if I was a Cuba believer and I really believed in, like, some of the crazy shit this they do like some of this stuff would totally set me off okay like the first air force one is established at this time you know with truman Mm. it's a plane called like the vc 54c i don't know enough to know what the fuck that means but uh the bill signing took place for the national security act on this you know what the first presidential presidential aircraft was called before it was called like air force one technically oh no don't tell me like if you know your bible history at all like this will be very interesting. It was called Sacred Cow. Okay. I thought you were going somewhere else with that, but Sacred Cow is even fucking better, it, dude. Isn't that weird, though? Like, <laughs> you be like, dude, they're the fucking... Because, you know, Sacred Cow, if anybody's not as familiar with the Bible and Bible stories, like, have you ever watched the Ten Commandments movie where you have Moses and the Jews wandering the desert? Or maybe it's just before he goes and gets the tablets on the mountaintop, I think where he's gone up on the mountaintop for a certain time and the, and the people get nervous after he's gone and they end up like building this golden calf and worshiping it instead of God. And it's called like, you know, the sacred cow, like sacred cow becomes a term for stuff that we won't touch or we won't attack because, you know, it's seen as too high up there, but in its literal meaning, it just means, you know, like this thing we worship instead of God. And it becomes like a joke in the, uh, the Kevin Smith movies as well. The movie. <laughs> So I thought that was kind of funny. Sacred cow, dude. That's amazing. Yeah, like, it's just one of those things where it's like, come on. Like, if if it was really the deep state, would they be that fucking obvious? (laughs) Dude, that's like, honestly, though, like, if you think about it for a minute. Or like the Q stuff. I mean, because obviously the deep state. There's always a a kernel of truth. That's not what I, that's the fucked up thing about Q. No, but the thing. The thing you have to realize is the kind of people running operations that are like deep say stuff, most of them are Q people themselves. So like any sort of like mass array or assembly 
doesn't eventually work out. Like it's enough to cause like a trouble and stuff that should be taken out. But well, they that's fuck the fucked up, up so thing, much. Is they wish that, it was that kind of stuff, but they like they just want it for their means instead. Yeah. They don't want it because they care about like the safety and like protection of other people. They want it because they can be like, aha, I told you so, dude. Yeah. So get yeah, dunked on. Like, like you have this not only anti communist turn in like hard enforcement, you have the military and the intelligence community <clears throat> basically being reestablished. And that's going to have huge consequences for Cuba, as we will see in the future in the next episode. And for the rest of the world, as we will see in future episodes, and as we have seen in past episodes where, where we brought up the CIA with Operation Gladio and other events as well. But I, really quick, Hirsch, before we get back to Batista making his comeback, uh, anything about like the stuff we had mentioned right now with the National Security Act or Truman or any of that anti-communist stuff you wanted to mention? Um, just to just to remind people that when it came to the idea of communist threat, um, because it was just such a blatant term, like communism, if you were to ask even today, when people have access to things like the Internet, you know, public libraries uh, are a lot more prevalent. Um, people c- cannot define to you themselves exactly what communism is. Well, it just gets tossed around, right? Like, it's like the term left. Like, people will call Nancy Pelosi a radical leftist when it's like, no, man, at best, she's like a center leftist, you know? Without a doubt. And I think think it's important to to try and think just exactly, um, not just in past terms, but in present terms, um, the way that communism is thrown around now and what is usually done to, uh, to uphold against that threat, whether it be military or police mm-hmm. or um, some sort of economic uh, intervention, you know, sanctions, uh, tariffs, everything, other, other things like that. And I think um, maybe the only thing that modern like, groups might be able to think of as like a close comparison is, is the buildup to anti-Chinese sentiment that you're seeing right now like the what you can kind of call the modern Chinese scare that's especially going on right now that was in, influenced especially by the, by the COVID uh, stuff going on. Like you have a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment, which is also ethnic, and you see like the Asian shootings and the Asian attacks and shit going on too. But like uh, the anti-communist thing had like a bunch of different facets just as well. It had, like we had said, the, anti-McCar- the McCarthy stuff where you had like Hollywood purges, you had the blacklist. You have uh, any kind of you couldn't be a communist and join any kind of organization. You like this is kind of a quick tangent, Hirsch, but like I worked in politics for, for six years. You remember? Oh, and yeah. No. One of the things I, I was was a, what's called a precinct committee person. And that's where you can be official part of the local party. And eventually I got appointed to a different position where I didn't have to do that anymore. But early on, like to be a precinct committee person, you have to just get a certain amount of signatures or be appointed, blah, blah, blah. It's not as important. One of the things I had to do was I had to go down to the county clerk or maybe the city clerk. I can't remember for sure. And I had to register. It's it's, it's county. Sorry. Yeah, it was one of the two. Yeah, it was one of the two. And uh, they were in the same building. That's why I can't remember. And I might have had to go to both. I only remember remember because when I was doing that shit for – for everything here when I got into politics. Yeah, that's right. You did it more recently than I did. And, uh, but yeah, one of the things I had to sign is I made sure to keep it too. Cause I felt so weird. I almost didn't sign it. Cause I felt so fucking weird. And I was a shit at the time. So like, I wasn't like as left as I am now, but I was still like, Hey man, this is weird. One of the things I had to sign, right. Said like, and one of those things I have never been affiliated 
and in the past, and I never will be affiliated with the Communist Party or any Communist Associated Parties. And I looked at that for a really long time, and the person was like, is there something wrong? And I was like, uh, kind of. And <laughs> I, I wasn't aware. Like, I knew that these things started getting made in the 40s and the 50s, but I figured they were all off the books, you know. But, like, I guess nobody, especially at that point, really gave a shit or called themselves a communist enough to, like, really throw a fit about it, like I should have at the time. Um, but I eventually signed it and was like, this is fucking weird, man. I can't believe I had to sign something like that. But of course I was a shit lib and did it anyway. And because I wanted my little piece of the political pie and I thought I was going to be doing that for a living was like, yeah, this is my stepping stone. And yep. it was just a, it was a weird feeling. So like this anti-communist sentiment that it had really started in the red scare in the 19 teens, the 1920s, but it has its new version here after world war ii because you know they were short for a short while they were allies the the soviet union made huge sacrifices in world war ii um obviously they didn't just win it on i know a lot of leftists like to say if it wasn't you know the soviet union won that war it's like nobody won that war on their own it was called the world war for a reason uh but that's besides the point too but mainly we're just wanting to get the idea that the feeling that people had at the time was any kind of communist affiliation was dead in the water. You could not be affiliated at any point. And even past affiliations, you had to cop to them and name names if you wanted to be accepted into general uh, society, whether it was politics, Hollywood, or whatever it might be. And that's why, since we're going back into Batista now. and I, I think, think that's the pressure he's feeling. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that's why I wanted to bring up all that stuff is I think, I don't know if Batista was cool from the beginning or not, but I think that definitely had an impact. No, it, it, it definitely did. And I think that, you know, again, you have somebody like Batista, who's obviously he, you know, uh, going into the first election where he'd gotten uh, chosen to be president, he was very anti um, U.S. intervention. He was into social and economic as well as uh, educational reform. And then he goes to America and that's, and that's the thing that, that, really gets to me and that makes me feel almost as if it was just riding a wave more than it was an actual belief in ideology because uh the the old adage is right you know power or money corrupts Mm -hmm. you know wealth corrupts but i myself because of my own personal beliefs have i kind of more or less fall in the line where money doesn't corrupt it just reveals um and unfortunately, the majority of us like to have this idea that, you know, people are good. Everyone's good or not everyone, but the majority of people are good and aren't selfish and et cetera. But uh, the truth is uh, most people are selfish and they aren't good because the terms good and bad themselves are, are relative and mean absolute bullshit. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, that's just something I wanted to quickly interject. Sorry. No, no, you're absolutely right too. And like I said, I'm not a hundred percent sold that he was, you know, a, a true populist, a true socialist in the beginning, but he at least pretended to be, and he didn't feel the pressure. He felt the pressure that way early on. And that pressure eventually changed. That's probably well, the no. larger point that we should make. Cause yeah, like, I think it probably is better to say like, you're, you're probably a hundred percent right. That it's better to say he, he felt pressure from the left in the beginning and that, pressure shifted rightward um and he eventually responded a lot more to that rightward pressure than he ever did the pressure from the left that's for sure 
Well, and the thing was, too, right, during his first presidency, before he left to Florida, he had gained a lot of wealth during his presidency, which, again, you know, in the United States, the person who's president doesn't even get paid that much. So just imagine how much somebody from Cuba is going to be paid to be president. So obviously there was a lot of corruption there. But the guise of the economic growth and because it was shared wealth, right, like people were having good jobs, they were having uh, their education system was good. They had some of the best literacy test uh, scores um, in the world. They had yeah. some of the best health care. And it was something that people were like, oh, well, you know what? He just got wealthy because everybody else has, has money and like everyone else is doing well. So that's why he's wealthy. It's OK. Um, yeah, like the Constitution he had helped pass, like there was land reform, public education, universal health care, minimum wage. Like they got rid of capital punishment. They were and about, they, you know, taking land holdings away from the big plantations and mills and stuff like that. Like, and another big there. part of that, and another big part of that too, which doesn't get talked about enough, I feel like personally, is that part of that constitution also made sure to reinforce the protection and safety of female workers and yeah. to ensure that they get equality on the workforce, which means equal pay. It's um, very progressive. Yeah, it was it was it was actually almost mind blowing because it's like, yo, this is the system that America should have right now. Like, what the fuck are we doing? We're way behind the game. We're about a hundred um, years behind, right? <laughs> yeah, just a little, just lagging a little bit behind, bud. Uh, but yeah, it's it, it was it was fascinating. And then he comes back from Florida, and and I just wanted to quickly say while he's in Florida, not only is he under, um, I, I guess I'll, I'll use this term loosely, supervision of United States government as well as CIA operatives, but he's also under supervision and contact with someone known as Meyer Lansky. Um, And Meyer Lansky was a head operative of the Jewish mafia at the time. And he also had connections to someone we had mentioned on a previous podcast, Lucky Luciano Um, and Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, as well as Batista would often be seen together and would, uh, be in constant contact um, talking about what exactly who knows, but the fact remains that they were all starting to uh, formalize together and work together and start to um, plot some sort of um, agreement. Because at this point in time, right, Batista is away from Cuba, but he obviously still has connections that are there. And while he's gone, leadership there is dealing with lots of social unrest. They are dealing with instability that is caused not just from U.S. intervention, but also just caused from uh, from Cuba making multiple mistakes, such as being a single-crop economy, um, not investing in certain types of infrastructure. I mean, the list goes on. It's a, it's a perfect storm of shit, and they had to eat a shit sandwich, and that's what ended up happening. Yeah, and he's <coughs> continuing to be involved in politics. Like you said, he's elected to the Cuban Senate in, abstem- in abstentia in 1948, so even though he's not quite there yet, he's involved in politics. He's going to eventually want to run for president again. But one of the things that comes up, and Hirsch, you had mentioned the, uh, the connections to the United States Mafia and the Costa Nostra, you have in 1946 what's called the Havana Conference, which is a, a huge event as far as organized crime in the United States and, and Cuba is concerned, where it actually it ends up informing a lot of The Godfather Part Two, where Hirsch, you remember... Michael gets, you know, he goes down to Miami, like you had said. You have the, you have the character who's basically based on, uh, was it Meyer Lansky? Yeah, Meyer Lansky, who was uh, Hyman Roth. 
Yeah, Hyman Roth. And so you have not only The Godfather 2 is probably the first time I ever saw any reference to this. Hirsch, I don't know about you. Oh, same. Yeah, I never knew yeah. anything about it before. Well, and they have an interesting scene, right, in, uh, in The Godfather Part 2, where they're, they're getting there as, like, the, the – like, I think they changed the timeline a little bit. It's a little bit after the Havana Conference because he gets there in, like, the early 50s, I believe. And he's seeing the anti-Batista – or maybe it's not even necessarily anti-Batista stuff going on, but doesn't they, don't they see like a rebel or somebody like basically blow themselves up to get rid of like a, a government agent or some shit like that? Or somebody yeah, like there was, there was a roadblock and they took out like a, like a general or something like that. Yeah. And so they, they have this, this reference, this homage to stuff going on, but the actual story is a little bit interesting as well with this Havana conference where you have Lucky Luciano, um, Meyer Lansky, they basically have an idea like, hey, let's get all the different mob bosses, all the different organized crime bosses, including Jewish mafia, um, in Cuba. Because Cuba, like we had mentioned before, becomes like a playground. It becomes a, not only for American business interests, for, but for the shady business interests as well. And I think the American mafia is a great example of that, Hirsch. As we've been watching Sopranos, like, you realized how America, the American mafia is just capitalism run amok? And like it's true capitalism, like it's just you know winner take all, like the strong man wins kind of shit, and all the money goes to the top and the shit runs downhill. That's basically how that show goes. And I, I think you get a great example where not only do you have stuff like Banana Republic stuff going on, but you have the mafia running gambling and um, and and sex work and all this other kind of stuff going on as well, where they're running major drug networks that are going to have connections to Cuba and that's going to have ramifications that we're going to see in the future as well. No. And, and just, uh, and, and to go back quickly, right. So you have Batista who we had mentioned before, um, he, he's in this point now where he, um, is running, running for president. He realizes that he needs one, some sort of tourist attraction to bring in tourism, you know, people from Western and then uh, foreign uh, powers to, to come in and spend money. And the other thing is he just needed investment in general. And the type of investment that he wanted was investment that not necessarily benefited the country that he was going to be operating in or that he was supposed to uh, lead himself, but instead benefit himself and the people that were helping. And because of that, you end up seeing, uh, like we had mentioned, people like Lucky Luciano and Mayor Lansky, who were uh, all working together to ensure that um, certain mob bosses and certain people would be coming down and take over the gambling rackets and the prostitution rackets that were already in place in Cuba at the time that were led by a lot of leftist resistance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Havana Conference, it takes place at the Hotel Nacional de Cuba. You know who was a silent partner along with Lansky and eventually uh, um, Luciano. Who's that? Batista. No shit. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, he's a silent partner in the in the casino hotel, so he was always getting a cut. God, and and that's where like they had like a lot of politicians and ambassadors and shit go to as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like, well, and that's what's funny is the Havana conference. Like the reason the official cover story for why they're all there is that Frank Sinatra was the entertainment. Yeah. Like he was sent there with a couple of cousins of Al Capone who were from the Chicago outfit. And so Sinatra's the entertainment. Luciano 
is there trying to basically establish himself as like the boss of bosses after he basically, because he has an interesting story where like he had had to go, like you had talked about, remember in a couple episodes about Gladio, you had talked about mm-hmm. the connection between Luciano and the American government where he was in jail, remember? And he made that mm-hmm. deal like to protect the, the ports and shit like that. He had gotten like kicked around, but he always planned on coming back to the States or at least being involved in the States. And Cuba was his opportunity. And that's why he wants all these guys to get there. And so he's like, I want to be boss of all bosses. We're going to be establishing a heroin and drug trade that's going to be running through through Cuba. And then eventually a cocaine trade that we're going to see later on running through the same kind of networks and that kind of thing. But they're, they're controlled by the, either the Jewish mafia, the Italian mafia, or combinations. And so the, the Havana Conference is if anybody is interested in mob history, just check out anything you can on it. I think it's really fun to talk about. I think it'll be kind of fun maybe if we have a chance, Hurst, to do a couple mob episodes because we do have a local uh, mob history that I know a little bit about as well. Yeah, I'd love to do that. And I think that'd be fun. But you have stuff going on where you have names like Bugsy Siegel. Like there's hits that are ordered. There's, uh, there's guys who are decided about bosses. Like Luciano gets a, gets a fucking suitcase with like two fucking million dollars in it for like his share of the U.S. rackets he had missed out on that he's still controlled and stuff like that. Like there's just a, there's a reason that it, it got into a movie like Godfather 2. But if anybody's and, interested, check it out. And just to give a quote, just to give a more realistic lens as opposed to a Hollywood lens of, of how it was. Um, I, I don't have the exact name at the moment. I'll try to look through my notes, but I do have the quote. This is just to get an idea of what it was like at the time for Cuba when you started seeing the introduction of the United States um, uh, deep state as well as the uh, La Costa Nostra takeover. A volatile mix of, Mont- of Monte Carlo, Casablanca, and the ancient city of uh, Cadiz, all rolled in one. A bitch's brew of high state gambling, secret re- revolutionary plots, violent repression, and gangsterism. That was the way that um, that was the general consensus of what Cuba and where Cuba was at the time. It was the Latin Las Vegas, and Las Vegas is getting built up by Siegel at the same time as Cuba is getting built up by the mob as well. And well, so- and, and, and you had mentioned Las Vegas. Sorry, I just wanted to say you had mentioned Las Vegas, but like the way that they were starting to try to present Cuba, especially with this new influx of investment, was they were trying to turn it into the like basically the Caribbean Sweden mm-hmm. is, is what they were trying to do. They wanted it to be a huge tourist destination. Like even after Bautista, we should probably talk really quick. Bautista eventually comes back, runs for president in '52. He uses all these mob connections and that kind of thing to kind of reestablish himself in, in a pro-American eyes, but he loses. So he is not elected democratically, but he still ends up in power. And I don't know, Hirsch, if you wanted to talk about the coup at all, or if you wanted to kind of focus on the, the actual just presidency that he resumes again. Um, we can just quickly go into it. So in 1948, he ends up losing to uh, Prio Sakaris. Um, and if well, I pronounce that name wrong, I well, apologize. in 48, he's in the Senate. I think it's 52. Oh, okay. He's for president. Well, see, the thing is, um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But but this is the setup. Um, yeah, just quickly. So in 1948 to 52, you have Prio Sakaris, right? And mm-hmm. he is supposed to be an ambitious uh, ideologue, kind of like uh, Batista was supposed to be. But uh, quickly and surely, um, economic instability starts taking place. Corruption starts taking place. So in 1952, there's new elections. That's where Batista runs in. Um, and that's where we're going to talk about the coup, also known as the Gopal, 
Um, and if again pronunciation's wrong, I apologize. I'm just a white boy. Um, but this was something that ended up taking place, uh, which it, it was kind of a bizarre instance. So Batista, even though he had came back and he still obviously had a lot of powerful connections, not just in Cuba but as well in the United States, um, he expected to be defeated um, in this race. So uh, it, it, assuming defeat, he ends up launching a coup. Um, on March 10th. And in this coup, he is able to basically overturn and take control. And almost immediately after he takes control of the government, um, the United States recognizes him as the, the new leader of Cuba. And it's very strange because not only does he outlaw the Communist Party at that point in 1952 after he takes power, he also aligns himself with the wealthy elite who control the large sugar plantations. And that he eventually presides over an economy that continues to grow the gap between rich and poor. And that exploitation, that gap between rich and poor is going to eventually start fomenting. You start to see a lot more leftist uh, organizations popping up. But then you also see a lot more censorship and a lot more murder of, of people, a lot more kidnapping and disappearing of people. Um, where you have Batista basically getting to profit not only from the government contracts with the sugar plantations and legitimate business, but also profiting from his continued commercial interest with stuff like the American mafia, whether it's drugs, gambling, or sex work, that kind of stuff. Um, he's also getting multinational companies to, to build hotels, to build tourism lines, to build, you know, uh, factories to do whatever. So he's taking a cut and I have a, a good quote. I just wanted to share really quick here, Hirsch. Um, where there's a U.S. ambassador to Cuba, uh, a guy named Arthur Gardner. He later describes the relationship between the United States and Batista during Batista's second term. This is, you know, at the time he comes back. And Batista had always leaned towards the United States. So even when he was a leftist, he probably was leaning towards a pro-U.S. stance. I think maybe because Roosevelt, FDR at the time, like he wanted FDR to go after like Spain and that kind of thing too. Uh, here's uh, uh, Gardner continued, excuse me. I don't think we ever had a better friend. It was regrettable. Like all, like all South Americans, that he was known, although I have no absolute knowledge of it, to be getting a cut, I think is the word for it, and almost all the things that were done. But on the other hand, he was doing an amazing job. So not only did he have American support, but he was always getting a cut, no matter what it happened to be, from government contracts, from illicit contracts. And like Hirsch said, I think you have an example of a guy who is, is showing his true colors when it comes to his second administration and his second uh, uh, dictatorship, essentially. Well, and, and again, I, I only stress that because I, because of my own personal beliefs, it, it may be possible that he was a true leftist and he just, maybe he got co-opted. No, maybe like, it's just... I, I think you're probably right, Hirsch. I think he just felt pressure. And even if he was a true leftist at some point, it wasn't very deep. Yeah, it was more, um, it was more by name than anything else. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and I just want to go back really quick because you'd mentioned the fact that Batista had had canceled out the uh, the Communist Party of Cuba. Would, it's kind of funny that he did that, though, because he was a person who had literally legalized it 10 years previously. Yeah, no, so like he had, he had made out. sure that that's why I thought it was ironic. You know, like he, he continues to have support of the labor unions even after uh, outlawing the communists. And it shows the, the connections that he had with the elite. And I'm pretty sure that the, the heads of the different labor unions were getting either connected to the mafia themselves or were getting a cut too. Yeah. I just, the, the way I see it, right, 
I think the I think Batista saw what was going on in in uh, South America, Mexico, etc., and he understood that if he were to come at it from like a middle class perspective, the way that he would rule, right, he would get his head removed instantly. <clears throat> Not necessarily either by the military or by the people, right? But for the most part, people in the military are afraid to remove a head because they understand it's the military. So if they remove it, somebody else is gonna be like, "Well, shit, I want some power too now. If he can fucking do it, I can." So. People are a lot more hesitant, um, especially in the military, to to necessarily make a first move as to where if you have like some sort of revolutionary movement or some sort of reactionary movement, people are more willing to take that step. Mm-hmm. And I think Batista had realized that if I can gain the support of people that are leftists and people that uh, study communist theory, I can at least have that guys and they can say, hey, well, he's the one who initially fought for that. And so he, it was his way of ensuring that he would be at least protected from one side that he could always fall back to. Because then he could always say, hey, listen, I didn't really want to take back all that shit that I did. The Americans made me do it. I had no control. They had my family. They took my wife from me and made me marry this other woman, blah, 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 blah. Like, because that was another thing that was important about Batista, too. He had been married to somebody, and then he ended up marrying a mistress that he had uh, met while he was in Florida. So, uh, again, it just, not to sound like one of those crazy Q people, but it just seems to me that there's a lot of um, extremely uh, rare coincidences that that start tying Batista and and get him uh, to have what politicians love to call plausible deniability. Absolutely, but he also has these huge connections to American business and American government that you had mentioned before too, right? Like, so it's mm-hmm. not surprising that we eventually see this uh, this shift. And I think you had a couple of stats, Hirsch, that you had mentioned about ownership and what people are in control of and that kind of thing. Did you want to read a couple of those numbers really quick? I had a couple I was going to get to as well, if you didn't mind. Yeah, so, so just quickly to get an idea of the way that um, anti-American resentment was happening – and the reason that uh, communist rhetoric was starting to take take root and starting to gain popularity at this point of the Batista regime, um, U.S. corporations had 90% control over Cuban mines, 80% control over uh, Cuban public utilities, 50% control of the railway systems, 40% control of sugar production, and 25% control of their banks. U.S. corporations, mind you. Not even Cuban. Um, and, and with that kind of uh, complete control of resources, uh, there's literally nothing anybody can do at any level to, to, to fight or try to go against that. And they supplied two-thirds of Cuba's imports. So not only are they controlling the exports, but they're also making money off anything that actually gets brought in as well. So they can double the money because they're charging yeah. more because of tariffs and everything that they started enacting, yeah. right? So yeah, you can't, you can't fucking lose for winning. Uh, yep. The opposite of what usually is, right? And <laughs> yeah. yeah, so like private companies dominate that island's economy. Those those stats are right on the money. And uh, you even have people like Kennedy who end up continuing a lot of this stuff, as we'll see in the Bay of Pigs and a couple of the other stuff going on in the Cuban Missile Crisis and that kind of thing in the next episode. But I had mentioned a, a quote that I had seen of, of Kennedy's. Let me see if I can find it again, Hirsch. I'm sorry. If you wanted to continue really quickly. Um, yeah, you're fine. So while, while Steve is looking for that quote, we're just going to wrap up um, a little bit 
about the Batista regime so we can start transitioning for our next episode, which will be focusing on the revolution. Um, but obviously, with with the stats that I just provided, general consensus was Batista was either a sellout or he was always a sellout, right? Or he was just a, a mm-hmm. wolf in sheep's clothing. So public dissent is starting to increase. Um, and because Batista is starting to realize that he is losing control of his nation, he starts tightening his grip. He starts censoring media. He creates um, anti-communist secret police that are there to make sure that they intimidate um, any opposition. And by intimidate, I mean um, shoot, lynch, execute, torture um, by any means necessary to make sure that, uh, quote, communism was to to be fought. Um, now, it's said that towards the end of Batista's regime, between 10 and 20,000 people were murdered. And that was all with the backing of the United States military as well as Wall Street. And I just want to quickly add to that number. The 10 to 20,000 mark is only what is given by not just Cuban government, which was doing the crimes and atrocities at the time, but also by the United States government, which was helping commit the atrocities at that time. So 10 to 20,000, I would like to think that maybe add another 15, 20 K more. And you probably have a more actual, um, number uh to go with uh i don't know if he had found the quote yet or if you wanted me to continue Stu. you know i i can't find that original quote i found a second one though where like you know kennedy basically said we let batista put the u.s on the side of tyranny and we did nothing to convince the people of cuba and latin america that we wanted to be on the side of freedom so even the the libs at that time you know are thinking eisenhower's policy a lot of the policy that we're we're taking towards cuba is wrong and not only is it is it making things worse in Cuba, but it's, it's making things worse probably for democracy overall. And, <laughs> you know, we're going to see, especially in the Cuban revolution, like a lot of socialist foment, right? A lot of people who are upset and you can kind of get the idea why that's going to happen because really you have a, a terrible situation faced by most people at that time. You had, you had mentioned some of the stats, you know, about people being in, about the different uh, corporations being in control of different uh, aspects, whether it's, you know, 90% of the mind, shit like that. There was a stat I had seen. Let me see if I can find it here. Sorry, Hirsch. Like I said, I misplaced some of my notes. I'm having an issue finding some of my uh, original sources here. No, I, had seen a, I had seen a pretty good stat about um, some of the lead up to that. Uh, what's going on there where basically you have the the gap between rich and poor expanding a lot um dang it why can't i find that stupid number um basically you have a really rich rich country for most people like you have really high meat consumption you have a lot of uh a lot of industry you have a lot of tourism but really for the wealthy people and the and the people in the countryside especially like there's only one hospital I think that was serving like the countryside compared to like 10 different hospitals in Havana alone, that kind of thing. There was a lot of just mass dichotomy between rich and poor people in the countryside had like a lot of uh, diseases. There's high infant mortality rate. There was stuff like tuberculosis, tuberculosis outbreaks, parasites, that kind of thing. Like you just, you had two different populations leading two completely different lives 
in Cuba, whether you lived in the countryside or even if you were poor and lived in the city, you were living a much different life than the rich people in the city. So that's leading into the socialist foment as well, where you have a, a very, a very upset, a very grieved population who is going to take basically doesn't matter who, but we just are going to take action at some point here. No, and I think, I think a great, a great quote for uh, the Batista regime, and it's and it's not just relevant to Cuba, but it's relevant to a lot of places right now, <clears throat> America. Um, mm-hmm. This was by Arthur Schlesinger, um, who was a future aide to John F. Kennedy. And the quote is, the corruption of the government, the brutality of the police, the regime's indifference to the needs of the people for education, medical care, housing for social and economic justice is an open invitation to revolution. Absolutely. And that was coming from somebody that was part of the United States envoy that was taking place in basically the handholding of the transition of the Cuban government to become more modernized and more westernized at that point in time. Now, I'm not going to get too much into some of the things that were happening in the background during this because that'll be for the next episode. But I will quickly mention, because it's important too, um, towards the end of the Batista regime, you have the rise and power of a very charismatic and a very influential lawyer slash politician who everybody will come to know from the Call of Duty games, Mr. Fidel Castro. <laughs> and <laughs> and there becomes a few instances where there are clashes and there starts to become uh, revolutionary movements. And there is a few moments where um, Batista is um, poised to possibly bring an end towards the instability, at least from the side that Fidel Castro is starting to prop up. But he squanders his opportunity and in ushers the Cuban Revolution, which we will talk about next. I'm not going to skip ahead or try to go further. I'm going to drive it back for a quick second. Yeah, I was able to find that quote, Hirsch, from Kennedy, but I wasn't able to find the numbers that I was trying to point out from the Batista uh, presidency. But just keep in mind that there was massive, massive differences between being the rich and the poor as far as wealth and quality of life that led to a lot of the foment for this eventual revolution that's going to break out. But I think a quote from Kennedy um, uh, kind of in retrospect puts a lot of, uh, in retrospect for him, it, it, this is after the revolution starts, but I, th- I think it puts a lot of what we've been talking about in perspective, especially for the people in the time we're believing this as well, where he says, we, the United States, have not only supported a dictatorship in Cuba, we have propped up dictators in Venezuela, Argentina, Colombia, Paraguay, and the Dominican Republic. We not only ignored poverty and distress in Cuba, we have failed in the last past eight years to relieve poverty and distress throughout the hemisphere. And he was making that in the context of, of being against the Eisenhower administration's policies, but I think it just points to the overall mission of the United States and its business interest, business interest and other aspects as well, that really Cuba was just seen as, as the next thing that could be exploited, that could be the next thing that could be taken advantage of. And that mentality would only change with the fact that a guy like Castro eventually takes power and doesn't allow that to be the truth anymore. Um, I, th- I think 
a great way to to cap that off and and just to cap this episode off in general. Um, as I had mentioned, there was multiple chances for Batista to to basically end this uh, thorn in his side, as he had often referred to it. Mm-hmm. But there was uh, one specific instance where Fidel Castro had uh, been exiled. And he ended up going to Mexico, which we'll talk about more next episode. But he comes back. And when he comes back, um, it is an unsuccessful attempt that he has. However, in his unsuccess, he is able to flee within the jungle. Um, the, I believe they call it the Sierra Mestra jungle, which is basically in the central part of Cuba. So instead of taking people who were invading and pushing them back to the sea, he allowed... Uh, forces to infiltrate and basically start enacting guerrilla warfare, which is, again, something we're going to talk about in the next episode. And I myself am going to end on this quote and this sentiment before I pass it off to Steve in case there's anything he wants to recap. Um, And this quote comes from a writer who was prominent in the area at the time, Mr. Montner. And the quote is, Batista does not finish Fidel out of greed. His is a government of thieves. To have a small guerrilla band in the mountains is to his advantage so that he can order special defense expenditures, expenditures rather, that he can steal himself. Hmm. No, and I think that maybe the only thing I want to add is Batista at one point was presented with a golden telephone from the ITT Corporation, which was an American-owned multinational. And uh, I think the metaphor speaks for itself, and I'll just end it there. Amen. Um, thank you, Steve, for taking part of this podcast. This was a lot of fun. This is definitely one of the episodes that is up there in terms of ones that I enjoyed doing. Um, appreciate you always taking the time. I know right now it's busy for the both of us, um, especially in your case, because, you know, you got a little one that you have to chase after. No, this is a lot of fun. And I think part two is going to be even more interesting as we get into the revolution proper and we deal with interesting characters like Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, and then future characters who get involved in the, on the United States side as well. Indeed. And, and one thing I want to end with, and, and cause I actually lied about where I wanted to end before, but one thing I want to end with is asking the audience a question and those who are still listening. Um, I brought it up to my brother before we got on. I drew the comparison between Batista and Obama. And the reason I had done that was because um, Batista was the first non-white Cuban president to be elected democratically, (laughs) cough. And Obama was the first non-white or not purely white uh, president to be elected in the United States of America. And both um, had came in with leftist idea um, both had campaigned on uh, leftist populism and eventually shifted over towards um, centrist and right-wing uh, politics towards the end of their careers and kind of was how they were remembered as uh, for the rest of the time. Um, even though history and, and media itself does a good job of whitewashing and um, taking context out of certain situations. So with that, I'd like for you listening to think of ways that uh, Batista and Obama were possibly uh, the same or how they were different. If you think I'm I wrong, will, I, think- I, I will at least say 
we can say Batista was a little bit more extreme, both in the fact that he was probably a more successful leftist in his first term. And his second term, he killed at least like 20,000 people. So like, he was definitely a lot more extreme in the different ways he went. But I, I do appreciate the question and the metaphor because it does speak to a lot of ex- a lot of things about expectation and maybe the, the hope that is placed on these different individuals and what kind of advantage they can take uh, based on the, the, you know, the need that we have to hope that, you know, people can actually care about us on a high level. Well, that and also just the way that they react to um, <clears throat> different social movements. The way that Batista did. Um, I think a great example would be like the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, especially under Obama, it was something that was demonized and uh, damned from him and his administration when they first started coming out. Yeah. And it's uh, it's a popular stance that's often taken by those in power. Well, and he, you look at him taking the teeth out of any kind of actual movement last summer, whether it was uh, the NBA protest or other stuff trying to calm down what was happening when, a, when it felt like a at least some form of a revolution could have taken place at some point, maybe even if it was just a social revolution as opposed to a full governmental one. Uh, he made sure to take the, the air out of that very quickly too. So he did, tro- he did show his true colors eventually. I do definitely agree with you in that, in that aspect of what you're talking about. Indeed. Um, but again, on behalf of Stu and myself, thank you everybody for listening, continuing to support. Um, we're going to be doing the keeping revolution next and I think uh, besides some of the Cold War stuff we plan on getting into in the future episodes, we're going to be having uh, episodes talking about uh, different mafia families as well as different uh, narco traffickers. Because I think uh, not only is it an interesting subject, but it's very um, pertinent and important to the American story. Yeah, as we go further along in the Cold War, we're going to see the drug war become a major aspect of that as far as Latin American policy um, not only is it anti-communist, but it, it's weirdly involved in the in the drug trade in different ways. And uh, we're going to be doing that, I think, not this upcoming Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, Hirsch, probably the second episode on the revolution. And then Correct. this Tuesday, I was thinking we can do another episode kind of like we had before where we can talk about a co- I had a couple of different topics I was hoping we could talk about. You probably have a couple of different topics, too. So I think it'll be fun. Indeed. Looking forward to it. Um, yes. Until next time. Everybody take care. Have a happy and safe 4th of July if you choose to celebrate. Um, And just make sure that you're not shooting fireworks off at like 12, 1 o'clock in the morning being a fucking asshole. Because I will call the police on you. Because you know what? Fuck it. The authoritarian in me wants to see you get beat by the police for being annoying. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't really want that. I was just kidding. I'm glad I have a day off, but fuck that white man's holiday for the most part. I just like the... I just like the day off and the fact that yep. it's summer. Yeah. And hey, looking forward to seeing you. Hopefully you have some food. Definitely. Yeah. Um, we're going to be over either tomorrow or the day after. All right. Cool. Looking forward to it. Uh, see you, everybody. Bye.